He's done for, said Ambiatus, when I was chased back into the open by the horsemen. Good riddance, he added as they bore down on me. Shut up, Ambiatus, the Magus said. They'll have to dismount to get him, said the captain. They won't have any trouble, the Magus had said sadly, not knowing how strongly my father had desired me to become a soldier and not a thief. Okay, on three. One, two, three. Shut, Shut up, up Ambiatus! Bye, Ambiades. Have a nice fall. Nice of you to drop by. Hope we weren't too pushy. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the 11th hour of our discussion of The Thief here on the Atolian Archives, the podcast about those books that you thought you, your friend's roommate's cousin, your local children's librarian, and nobody else was really into. Until now. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And we're here to make bad puns and read The Thief. And we've almost finished The Thief. It's October 21st, 2018, which means that the release of Return is in 149 days. Today, we're discussing chapter 11 of The Thief, in which Jen kills a guy and then has a lie down, Sophos cries, Ambiatis dies, and Paul does too, and Tolia terrifyingly smiles. Welcome to the beginning of the end of the beginning. That was more catchy in my head. Speaking of Ambiades, that's a very Odyssean way that he died, falling off a cliff. Yeah, over the edge of the mountain. Mm. There's a lot of violence in this chapter. (laughs) So much. And there hadn't been for most of the book. They allude to violence a lot. It's clearly a world in which there's a lot of violence, but we hadn't really seen it. And now, all of a sudden, two major characters are dead. And when we first hear about it, it has happened, essentially, quote-unquote, off-screen. Sophos just informs Jen, Paul and Ambiades are dead. And you have to absorb that really quickly, as Jen does. Mm-hmm. And then it goes back, and we're able to see that scene. And same with Jen's fight at the base mm-hmm. of the cliff. That, the details about that come out slowly. Right. Because Jen's the one writing, and he's very reluctant to relive it, I think. Mm-hmm. It starts off very vague with that not knowing how strongly my father had desired me to be a soldier and not a thief, which implies how good at fighting he is. And the way we find out the details of the scene is also very um, connected to how he's experiencing his his wound at that time, like his thinking is a little muddled, Mm -hmm. his memory is muddled, he knows there's something he's trying not to think about at first, Yeah, and then it comes to him. Much like when they had the first fight with the Aetolian soldiers, Jen feels very guilty about killing anybody even in Mm -hmm. self-defense. He killed one of the professional soldiers who were actively attacking him with swords, and he doesn't even want to think about it because it horrifies him so much. He narrates, It had felt no different from stabbing a practice dummy. I hadn't wanted to be a soldier. I'd become a thief instead to avoid the killing, see where that had gotten me." And he specifically thinks about how his enemies had had no way of knowing that they were facing a skilled opponent, and Jen knows that he had 
the advantage of their assumptions and he feels guilty about that right and says that it's just as bad as if he had stabbed the guy in the back in a dark alley it's also because it's jen a little bit humble braggy like oh i'm so good at sword fighting it's awful it's just so unfair for anyone to have to fight me but he is so bothered by his conscience that when he is narrating about how Eugenides comes and speaks to him about it he says he wants he would rather have died than have to deal with his conscience and then there's a moment of silence when he realizes that Lyopetus died because of the god Eugenides' actions so the god is also in the same way living with his conscience of being responsible for that death and they share that guilt that burden of living the quote is quite lovely it's um the god behind me was silent and the silence stretched out from my bedside through the castle and it seemed throughout the world as i remembered that lyopetus had burned and died while eugenides had not and it's uh, countless empty heartbeats jen's earlier narrative comment about how he became a thief because he wanted to avoid the killing makes me wonder is the god Eugenides sort of in the same situation where mm-hmm. this was never something he would have wanted to be involved with like killing mm-hmm. jen is also very young yeah which it's easy to forget and we talked about the ambiguity of his age earlier but he's without a doubt some kind of teenager mm-hmm. kind of hits home in a different way in this chapter yeah and it seems like everyone is expected to grow up very fast there's not much of a space for adolescence yeah it's a childhood and then you barrel right into adulthood i would say it kind of seems like that's the cultural norm cultural yeah expectation for sure because atolia also for example apparently she got married for the first time really young yeah there's a lot of both direct and indirect interaction with the gods in this chapter especially because Jen only lives through his stab wound because of the gift right which that's something that I did not notice on the first reading I remember and his the sword is pulled out and he says it feels like his life is being pulled out with it but stretches and won't quite leave him and the gods are keeping him alive, but at the same time, my living was at the same time an offense to them. What do you think that means? I wasn't sure. I think that the gift conferring immortality on the bearer is something that was agreed upon a long time ago and the gods have to honor it, Mm. but they are not necessarily happy about it and are not necessarily in agreement about it. Yeah. Jen is definitely favored by certain gods and maybe not by others. There's another bit where he's being carried away in the cart and he's also kind of half awake and half not. And he says that he hears important people shouting about him and thinks that there may be gods. Mm -hmm. And so there's conflict happening about what to do with Jen and with the larger situation even on the part of these great beings. 
Arrakis definitely does not like him. Yeah. And also, maybe that bargain about the gift conferring immortality was only supposed to be for the rulers. Mm-hmm. When the Magus says that if he could be anywhere right now, where would he be, is what Sophos asks uh, the two of them. The Magus says that he would be in the temple watching um, the marriage of Sunus and Edis. Mm-hmm. And Jen says, ugh, because he still associates the temple with boredom and he narrates my new vehement belief in the gods had made me no more tolerant of the empty mumbling i'd seen in temples all my life which also supports the idea that this level of involvement on the part of the gods with everyday life is very very rare Mm -hmm. and jen is either extremely lucky or extremely unlucky depending on how you look at it eugenides keeps helping him when they're trying to escape the castle Jen feels capable and well even though he's gravely injured and there seemed to be a bubble of silence surrounding us I also kind of thought that uh, capability was another effect of the gift that not only does it keep him alive but it keeps him well enough to get to a place of safety Mm -hmm. he also gets that feather shaped scar which is so cool from Eugenides when a bullet knocks a piece of rock into his face so he looks more similar to the god which is very mm, that's pretty big and that's Jen being (sighs) permanently marked with that connection there's no going back now you ain't divesting yourself (laughs) (laughs) any attention my friend and that's also I guess kind of foreshadowing for Jen's rise up the ranks of society Mm -hmm. into something almost dare I say it resembling a god yeah that starts here at the end of this book and speaking of a person resembling a god Mm -hmm. guess who shows up in this chapter finally something that I'd forgotten is that she smiles so much it specifically says that she smiles probably four or five times. Yeah. And I had always thought of her as... She's described as the stone-faced queen, as having no emotion. But really, she has this uh, detached amusement, which is what she chooses to portray. Mm-hmm. That's the mask. And that's pretty cool. And I was trying to think about that from her perspective given what we know about her and the difference between the way that Jen chooses to mask his vulnerability by pretending to be more vulnerable than he is and if you whine and complain all the time then nobody can tell when you're really hurt Mm -hmm. and Irene chooses to act as if she is somehow separate or above or immune to everything Mm -hmm. which Jen is able to see through even in this interaction when he says you are more beautiful but she is more kind Irene's smile falters and Jen notices that and maybe somebody else wouldn't have yeah there's a lot of emphasis placed on Atolia's physicality in this chapter um 
goes into a lot of descriptive detail on her. He narrates that she's lit by the aura of the gods. She's more beautiful than any woman I have ever seen, and everything about her brought to mind the old religion. So this is a pretty marked contrast between the rest of the book we've heard about this really fearsome personality mm-hmm. who is this enormous threat, who she's going to behead them all if she catches them, and now you have that juxtaposed with this is who she is in person. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of a wild card. A lot of this book has been about Edis versus Sunus, and we know something about the personalities of the rulers of both of those places. Mm-hmm. But Atolia has been very hazy off in the distance. Like, she's this scary third party who could ruin anything at any time. And, of course, she's a fiend from the underworld. (laughs) And mountain lions couldn't force Jen to enter her service. (laughs) It's gonna take on a whole different meaning, that line, (laughs) before you know it. (laughs) There are also a heck of a lot of hints and bits of foreshadowing and dramatic irony in retrospect in this chapter. The most we've had in a while, I think. Um, at the beginning of the chapter when Jen is lying in the cell and the Magus comes in, there's a big moment where the Magus says, like, I'm going to lift your head up and put my cloak underneath this pillow. And Jen says, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> and he relaxes when the Magus didn't notice the bump under my hair at the base of my skull. How did I not notice that the first time? That I read this. I know. Megan's a genius. That's how you didn't notice it. Megan's a genius. <laughs> Just really, really unobservant. Mm. Another thing that I don't think I had noticed on any read before this one is when Atolia comes in and she's talking to Jen and she says, he, being the magus, suggests, however, that your loyalty to your own country is not strong. I winced. I have no particular loyalty to the King of Sunus, your majesty. So not only does Jen lie by omission by saying, well, I'm not loyal to Sunus, but there's that I winced. Because even the suggestion that he's not loyal to his country, even though he knows that she thinks that he's from a different country entirely, is offensive to him. He wants to argue and prove that he is loyal. What a good point. I hadn't picked up on that. And Jen, that's one of the cool paradoxes about Jen, is that he's a little viper and you can't trust him and he lies, but he's so unfailingly loyal. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like all of those those irritating parts of his personality are on the surface, and then once you get down to some actual substance, he has so many really positive base personality traits like that. Mm-hmm. He doesn't let other people see unless they know him really, really well. Yeah. Because if people know what's really important to him, then that's something that people can use to hurt you. This is making me sad. <laughs> <laughs> what did we say before? Sad about Eugenity's moment? Two. Two. Five thousand. <laughs> Here's another one for the list. And that's another thing he has in common with Atolia, I think, is that that's the reason that she one of the reasons that she had to build such a strong mask Mm -hmm. over herself and her personality and her feelings and that she can't let anyone get close to her or see emotion Mm -hmm. because then she can get hurt through that yeah oh speaking of being sad about jen (laughs) 
uh, there are once again uh, instances where the narration keeps talking about one of his hands being injured and the other one being fine. There's also a line, it's so dark, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Which, if you're doing a real close reading, <laughs> I'm going to choose to believe that's on purpose. He also accidentally leads them towards Edis, accidentally on purpose. He gets the Magus turned around in the town in the darkness. Yeah, the Magus is like, oh no, we're going the wrong way. And Jen's like, what? <laughs> How could this have happened? <laughs> Another foreshadowing sentence I never picked up on. He breathes a sigh of relief when the Magus yeah. says they're going the wrong way. And he asks about the road, comma, although I already knew the answer. <laughs> So, sad about Eugenides number 27 of 2000 <laughs> is when he narrates that he thinks that Atolia would let Sophos and the Magus go, but try to catch him. He narrates, No one was going to start a war over me, and I could be tremendously useful if I could be induced to work for her. Oh, little does he know. We're putting our hands to our hearts right we now are, in sadness. both of us. <laughs> <laughs> and he is tremendously useful when he does switch his allegiances yeah i have a note for this chapter that's just sophos crying sad emoji <laughs> he's so precious he's never done anything wrong ever in his life he's not the only one who has to grow up in a hurry yeah i and feel so much worse about sophos than i do about jen sometimes though like like i feel like jen is a little bit more prepared for yeah, bad things to he, happen like he decided to take these risks right whereas sophos is just a baby <laughs> was carried along on this yes. trip and there's a really wonderful and very sad juxtaposition that emphasizes that contrast between childhood and adulthood and how sophos is kind of living in both of those places where he is crying about pole and he says, I don't want him to be dead, like a child. Mm -hmm. And then says that Pole has a family and I'm going to be the one to have to tell them that he's dead. Yeah. And so he has this child's grief, but also an adult's responsibility right. to deal with the aftermath of this death. Also, very interestingly, the Mead threat is brought back in this chapter. Mm -hmm. When the Magus says that he wants to see a marriage between Sunus and Edison, and Jen asks, why are you so keen on this marriage? And the Magus explains that Atolia, Edis, and Sunus are free, um, free countries sort of by chance at this point because they had the old invaders and drove them out. And that they had next the merchant empire as conquerors, mm -hmm. but were able to drive them out because the merchant empire was busy fighting the Medes. Mm -hmm. But that next, once that conflict between those two greater powers is over, the winner would be coming to conquer Atolia, Edis, and Sunus, and that's why the three countries have to be united, hopefully in the Magus' eyes, starting with Sunus conquering the other two. Yeah, and so now we understand much more about what the larger stakes are for what's happening in this book. And it's funny that after the Magus explains this whole thing, Jen says, oh, all right, that was something to think about while we were walking. And then he proceeds to spend the next four books trying to solve that problem. <laughs> so our wine count for this episode is zero instances of whining and zero mentions of wine. 
absolutely embarrassing. <laughs> That's maybe another good point to make about Jen is that when he truly is hurt, he doesn't. He complain. doesn't. Yeah. Sad about eugenides number twenty-eight <laughs> of two thousand. Our quote of the week this week is. The Medes have been trying for a hundred years to expand their empire to span the Middle Sea. Soon they will want not only our land, but to drive us off of it. For years and years they have fought what remains of the merchant empire, and while they fight, we are free. But when they are done fighting, Sunis, Edis, and Atolia must be united to fight the winner, or we will be subjugated as we never were before. There will be no Sunis, no Atolia, no Edis, only Mede. Also, it's wild that this was intended to be a standalone book. I know. Because you read that bit and you're like, all right, that's a problem for the next four novels. So we have an interesting reply to our last episode from Who Knows Your Future on Tumblr. They said, I thought on this week's episode, on my most recent reread, it finally clicked for me that when Jen is hoping to get the god's attention off of him, he's carrying Hamiathus's gift. Of course, we know he's not going to lose the god's attention anytime soon, but maybe he thinks once he's given the gift to Edis, they won't really care about him anymore. That's such a cool thought. Like, when he says, I wanted to divest myself of the god's attention, maybe the god's attention is the gift. I wanted to divest myself of the gift. Right, and he doesn't realize at this point that the reason he has their attention isn't necessarily because of who he is and what he's doing he just thinks it's because of the object not yeah. because of but actually he's important yeah. very important point thank you for that response that's chapter 11 next week jen finally finally gets home safe into his own bed and we finish the thief but don't worry that the podcast is ending the episode after next we start queen of atolia Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors.